Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's show, we're joined by Richard Davies. When you hear his voice, you may say, sounds familiar. He worked for ABC News Radio as a news reporter and host and worked in radio for 29 years. He currently heads his own podcast consulting business and co-hosts the Solutions Journalism podcast, How Do We Fix It?, which has aired more than 300 episodes and is part of the Democracy Group. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. So normally my guests are younger and I ask them for the story of their journalism path. Yours is a path uh, more than 30 years traveled and I summarized some of it. So let's start with this. What's a turning point in the early part of your career and is there a lesson from it that is instructive to aspiring journalists many years later? My career is a long and winding road, Mark, (laughs) but I will say that for better or worse, I pursued what I wanted to do. I have a memory of sitting on the floor at the age of nine with my dad's tape recorder, making up a newscast. Um, so I've always been fascinated by news, by the, by the new, by the difference between today and yesterday. And I've always uh, been interested in sound. Uh, First, it was uh, kids' records when I was very little, and then radio, listening to baseball games. So that's a little bit about my background, my love for audio. A turning point in my career really came when I was in the UK and had left university and was working in a newspaper as a journalist and just decided, no, this is not my true passion. I really want to get into radio. And that was uh, something that happened. I was very lucky because uh, the first group of legal commercial radio stations after the days of pirate radio came on, uh, came on air when I was a very young man in the 1970s. And that was the start of my career. So I think the lesson from that I would impart is follow what you're really fascinated by. That's a little bit different than following your passion. Follow what you don't think of as drudgery that a lot of other people will, because every job has its crappy moments, its moments of drudgery. But if you're doing something that you really like doing, then the the lousy moments are not nearly as important as those times that give you true joy and uh, a sense of accomplishment. So you've covered world events, the September 11th recovery, the fall of the Berlin Wall among them. Uh, What characterized your reporting of those stories? Always trying to find the human moments. A lot of reporters, I think, look for uh, what leaders are saying, which is fine. And, and covering the momentary hour-to-hour changes. But by speaking as much as I possibly could with people who were impacted by the story, whether they be uh, people in West Berlin who spoke surprisingly good English right after the fall of the Berlin Wall, or traders on Wall Street 
during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. Getting their perspective helped me get perspective as a reporter and see what was really important in my story. I would call that heartbeat journalism, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Um, what's the hardest reporting that you've ever done? You've covered a heck of a lot of stories. Without doubt, Somalia. Um, I was sent in as a reporter in 1993 when the U.S. was leading a, a U.N. mission, the United Nations mission, to end the civil war and the desperate famine in Somalia, in Africa. This was before the disastrous battle in Mogadishu when U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. My frustration was that we were in a reporting compound and had virtually no links or ties or ways of speaking with uh, Somalian people who really did not want the U.S. in Mogadishu, in their capital city, and were highly suspicious of us. And I found it extremely difficult to report that story fairly or from any sense of perspective that, that uh, I could bring, actually having traveled thousands of miles to be there. Can you give us a sense of like on a practical level what you had to do when, when you were out there? Yeah, we were in a very heavily guarded compound. Um, I was told um, one morning that overnight there had been a gun battle, which I'd slept through outside the compound where two people were killed. Uh, so we were hunkered down. And what I was really doing was just relying on news releases from the military and that's incredibly frustrating because I could have done that back in New York. Uh, the only thing I really had in that reporting assignment was the dateline and, and not the sense of what the people around me in that city were going through. Uh, this hits a little more one-on-one -on -one with people. You've done a lot of business and personal finance reporting. What characterizes your work in that area? Well, what I was trying to do with my business and personal finance reporting was make it relatable because there's this real divide, I think, between the financial community and the rest of us. And yet money is very important. I'm constantly aware of how ignorant many journalists are of the basics of finance and the economy in their reporting. There's a divorce between of the economy and politics and the economic consequences of political decisions are vastly important to all of our lives. So what I tried to do was to make uh, finance and the economy relatable to people by using specific examples. And this gets us back to the heartbeat uh, journalism aspect of things. Um, can you give a couple of examples or just one example of, uh, of how you did that? Yeah, I did a did a daily report uh, called It's Your Money for ABC News Radio for a number of years um, in uh, around, I think it was from like 2009 to 2015. And in those brief reports for commercial radio, I took a story every day and tried to explain why it was important. For instance, if you're a saver, uh, the fall at the time in interest rates, what that meant to your savings. It's essentially wiped out uh, the interest uh, on, on your savings in many cases. The stock market, the fact that, that about half of Americans have savings in the stock market, either through their 401ks or through individual investments or just general savings, explaining why 
uh, the ups and downs in the stock market were of importance to people. Those are two examples. I know that language and precision with language are, some, are things that are very important to you. What is a secret to summarizing that sort of information? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I think I've always preceded. I've always worked in, when I was in radio, in commercial radio, where I had very little time to explain a story. And that constant uh, discipline of sometimes explaining quite complicated concepts in less than a minute gave me my love of precision in, in language. I don't think there are many geniuses in the world. I think that most of us who are pretty good at what we do are only good because we do it over and over and over again. And as you mentioned, I worked at ABC News full time as a correspondent on air, as a reporter and as a, as a show host for about three decades. And just the daily rigor and the daily delights of that experience helped me to, to be more precise in my language. It's one of those things, they talk about 10,000 hours. You've probably done yeah. 10,000 reports in your time. Uh, yeah, so. I probably have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, now, with that, um, you're someone who, as I said before, a little older than our typical guests, but you are very uh, into the idea of celebrating new ideas and fresh thinking. What are some yeah. uh, examples of that? I think too often we are stuck in the current narrative, whether that is, you know, red versus blue in politics or uh, black versus white in race or right versus wrong. We have a very narrow way very often of judging others and looking at stories. So I've really been propelled by, by curiosity to try and find new ways of thinking. And that has become very fruitful in my podcast career, which began six years ago in 2015, after I left ABC News. Um, I just felt that I'd been working for a long time for a great employer, but nevertheless, a large employer who told me what stories to cover to a, to a considerable extent. And I worked in a very specific culture. By launching a podcast, and now several podcasts, I am my own uh, program director. So I was able to, to pursue a lot of new ideas and fresh thinking through uh, the podcast that um, I launched in 2015 called How Do We Fix It? Yeah, I was going to ask my next question. Uh, explain the concept of the show. The idea is that both Jim Meggs, my, my co-host, and I, are longtime journalists. Jim spent a, a, a long career in magazines. I've been in radio. And both of us came out of mainstream media thinking that reporters usually do a fairly good job of covering the who, what, when, and why of a story. But there's very little coverage of now what. What do we do with this information? What are some solutions uh, that we could consider or ask about and the difference between how do we fix it and most other podcasts is that every expert guest that we have on, and we've had about 330 shows so far, um, every guest, we, we say, okay, uh, we're going to ask you for your views about the problem that 
you're highlighting or that you want to talk about. But then we're going to ask you some ideas about potential solutions. And that's really the what we're doing. The show is also a friendship between Jim and I. Jim is a little bit more, cons well, he's considerably more conservative than I am. I'm more liberal than he is. But we try to learn from each other. And, and I think we have quite successfully. So it's a show about friendship, about respect, but also about embracing or at least considering ideas that perhaps you were initially really uncomfortable listening to and hearing. And an example of that, I listened to it the other day, uh, is the Better Policing uh, episode, certainly. Uh, that one initially threw me for a loop as I listened to it because it, it took uh, somewhat of an uncommon uh, perspective, or I guess took a perspective that I wasn't expecting. It was a civil discussion. It was a very human discussion. Um, can you just uh, educate us on that episode? Yeah, thanks, Mark, uh, for listening and, and noting that. Uh, our guest uh, was Nakima Levy-Armstrong, and she's a community activist and a lawyer, a civil rights lawyer in Minneapolis. And she wrote a piece for the New York Times back in November on why white progressives and the black community have different views of policing. She was criticizing white progressives for their uh, embrace of slogans like defund the police and saying what we really need is not defunding the police. Black communities that face high rates of, of violent crime need help from the police. They need protection, but they also need a police force that's well-trained and not racist and that takes on these matters in a much more professional way than is often the case and certainly was the case uh, with the murder of George Floyd and some of the other outrageous forms of behavior that we've had a lot of coverage of. Now, if we had heard that discussion on Fox News or MSNBC, it would have probably turned into a shouting match. Uh, on your show, it's a discussion. Here's the issue. Here's my take. Uh, here it is. It's just kind of presented out there for people as journalists do, right? Yeah, and we really learn from Nakima. I mean, Nakima clearly has an understanding of uh, the African-American community in Minneapolis that I certainly don't have as, as a middle-class white guy. And I just wanted to hear what she had to say because it was of real value. We weren't just going after white progressives and being snarky. We just wanted to understand why people from different backgrounds have different ways of viewing a very complicated, long-running, and nuanced crisis in our country. And I feel like that, the, the last thing that you said there, kind of runs as a theme throughout your show, whether it's climate change, social media, stopping the next pandemic, changing the way we vote. Uh, there was an episode, lighter topic, on stuff. Is there, an, is there another episode that you would like to tell us about that would uh, inform people as to what it, the show is and how it works? Yeah, a, a recent pair of episodes. Usually we interview one person one week and somebody else the next week, but we did a fascinating interview. And this was Jim, my co-host, who brought this story to my attention. I wasn't aware of it. Um, this is Alina Chan, a young research scientist born in Canada who challenged the dominant narrative by both the scientific and political community on where the virus that caused COVID-19 could have come from. 
Did it emerge in a wet market in Wuhan, China, as um, most people have said, or most experts have said was the case? Or could it have come from a highly prestigious lab just miles away where researchers, by the way, were studying bat viruses? Alina did not come to a firm conclusion. She was just raising vital questions. I mean, if we're going to prevent the next pandemic, we've got to know more in an honest way about how this one emerged. And so far, the Chinese government has stonewalled investigators and we really don't have any kind of adequate answer to that vital question. So that, that was one example. And again, I, I really wanna stress this. We, we try really hard not to be snarky, not to go on the attack. Uh, this show is more about constructive ideas and curiosity, and also hearing from contrarians who do raise sometimes uncomfortable ideas uh, in, a, in a respectful way. Can you explain the concept of solutions journalism as you see it? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, and this, this thinking came from, or was very well articulated, uh, by the leaders of Solutions Journalism Network. Uh, David Bornstein, um, of the, formerly of the New York Times co-founder who came on our show in the first year that we were on and really explained it much better than I'm going to. But what he was saying was that there's a real need for newsrooms, for reporters to consider uh, the possibility of, of solutions and, and not just the crisis they're covering. You know, journalism is dominated by clashes, contests, and coverage of celebrities. And that's not good enough. Um, we need to also, as journalists, ask about the possibilities of how to get things right. And that doesn't mean saying, look, you know, we've got the solutions for you. It's more about asking questions about solutions and considering them. I'll give you an example uh, that David raised with us. The Seattle Times, uh, a newspaper in Seattle, Washington, did a, an investigative series on truancy in public schools and how a lot of kids were skipping out of classes. And it's a, it was a real crisis, probably still is in Seattle. And they covered it and spoke to you know principals and kids and, and teachers and, and school administrators. And then they did something else. They went to Cleveland and to several other cities that have faced similar problems, but have found some solutions, some, found some constructive ways of dealing with it. And they reported on that as well. And that's really what I'm talking about is solutions journalism. It's, it's not just simply a hallmark card view of, oh, you know, things are great over there. You know, we just have to implement their ideas and everything will be fine and rosy. No, it's, it's, it's saying that as journalists, you know, we, we shouldn't just have investigative units of, in, our, in newsrooms. There should also be solutions units, too. One of the things that I know that you like talking about with that is one that I value, too. And it's how the spoken word is often devalued by sloppy speech. You see it in everything. I deal with it in sports writing uh, on a daily basis. You see it in politics every minute of every day. What's an example that gets you particularly worked up? Oh, there are loads of them. <laughs> there are loads of them. My, my, the, I, I, I write a blog, which 
I haven't been very disciplined about, but they're they're on Medium and on a few other sites. The blog is called Here Here, which is H E R E and H E A R. <laughs> and a lot of it deals with precision in language. One of the things that's driving me nuts at the moment is when people say to be honest. And it's like, oh, you mean you've not been honest until now? There are silly catchphrases. Another one that drives me crazy at, at, at is when every answer to a question starts with the word so. What do you think about this? So, you know, uh, another uh, filler words are, are unnecessary. I think that if you want people to lean into your speech, instead of peppering your sentences with, you know, you know, you know, or um, ah, pause. Allow a moment of silence. It's a way of respecting the listener. The listener, when you speak more slowly, realizes that you're taking he or she seriously by pausing to reflect and thinking about what you're saying, merely than just using run-on sentences. As someone who regularly deletes the crutch word, all right, from my speech on podcasts, uh, I appreciate what you have to say there. Thanks. So you so, so ha, you reported it from four continents and 35 states, and I know that you love to travel. What's your favorite uh, places to report from, whether it be continents or states? I'll give you an example. Okay, it's 1991, and a news editor at ABC News comes to me and says, we'd like you to go to Nashville and cover fanfare. Fanfare is an annual event or was an annual event before coronavirus where country music fans come and meet country stars. It's kind of very democratic and something that would never happen in rock music or uh, in many other forms of, of mass entertainment. And fans pay or paid, you know, 50, 60 bucks for three or four days. And they, this is during the early summer before it gets too crazy hot in Nashville. And there would be tents set up and people like Garth Brooks and Randy Travis and other huge stars would come and sit at the table and sign cards and autographs and explain and, and, and exchange pleasantries with fans face to face. Um, and often these stars, including Reba McIntyre, some very big names, would spend hours and hours in often a pretty hot tent, uh, just at a table, uh, chatting with, with their fans. And I thought this was really lovely. And it made me realize that, that country music, which is, was not a form of entertainment that I was at all interested in, had something special going on. And uh, I really enjoyed that. And, and as you have mentioned to me several times, Mark, uh, I like heartbeat journalism. And this was a great example uh, of that. Um, and, and it surprised me and I found it delightful. So I, I like going very much to Nashville. Another place I enjoy going to is Miami. Um, Miami is, is a, a gem of a city, fascinating place with so many different cultures and uh, a lot of really interesting people. But those are, those are just two examples. Overseas, uh, I, I like traveling to England because I spent 20 years living there. And so I enjoy going back and speaking not only with friends and with, uh, with, 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 with interview 
subjects, but also with members of my family. To continue the optimistic tone here, why should we feel, or the positive tone here, uh, why should we feel optimistic for the future of journalism? Oh, <laughs> I, I hope that we should, um, because I think most journalists are really curious and well-intentioned. Um, and, and I think that they're trying to do their best, often in very trying circumstances. I don't know who said it, but somebody said journalism is the first draft of history. And that first draft often needs correcting, understandably, because journalists, especially in this time of the internet and 24 seven cable television, journalists are being asked to report instantly, often on very difficult and complex matters. And the first take might be wrong. So I would hope that journalists combine curiosity and humility in their practice, perhaps more than they do sometimes, but, but yeah, it's like everything else. I think it's so easy from the outside to be cynical, um, but most professionals in most fields, including airline pilots and doctors, and yes, even journalists are trying to do their best, often in difficult circumstances where things are constantly changing. And in the case of newspaper journalists, they are very underfunded. They're not particularly well paid. And because of the decline in newspaper, printed newspaper circulation and classical advertising, which was the bread and butter of revenue for newspapers, uh, they're often uh, being asked to do a lot more with less and than they used to. With uh, 30 plus years of experience, uh, you certainly can uh, lend an expertise to those that are listening on questions. What is the best way to draw out the best answer in the people that you're interviewing? I'm the how do you feel guy. When I was covering um, presidential campaigns in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, at, at news events, when there were you know, news conferences, press availabilities by the candidates, I was the guy who would, who would typically ask, how do you feel? And often that question had two responses. One from my fellow journalists who would look at me and kind of shake their heads and roll their eyes and go, oh, what an idiotic question. But the response to that simple question very often was the best soundbite of the day because politicians are used to being asked about their views on policy over and over and over again, and they have pat answers. But very often when you ask simple emotional questions, it draws them out and, and again. you get a moment of surprise. Another, another follow-up to ask when you're interviewing someone is, tell me more, simple three-word question. But if, if somebody is giving you an interesting answer and you're thinking, ooh, I could ask a really interesting question of that person, I could show them how interested I am, don't try and impress the person you're interviewing. You're doing this for your audience. So tell me more is, is often a really great follow-up. So lastly, we close the show always with uh, this. Tell us a journalist who you think is doing good work that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute. There are so many. I, one of my favorite podcasts is The Daily from the New York Times. 
And there's a reporter there who is on quite frequently, David Sanger, who covers uh, military and diplomacy and uh, also military technology. And I very much admire not only his precision and his curiosity and his humility, but also his just great joy in what he is lucky enough to be doing, which is reporting and explaining to the public in a way that um, he considers to be a great privilege. And, and we are privileged as journalists. So that's just one of countless examples. There are many more. That seems like a good one to close on, certainly. Uh, Richard Davies, the host of How, the co-host of How Do We Fix It? Thank you for taking the time to join us. Mark, thanks very much for reaching out to me. So Richard, how do you describe How Do We Fix It? Serious. Playful. Open-minded. Argumentative. Liberal-leaning. Libertarian. Oh, we don't always have the same politics. But we do agree on this. For every problem, there ought to be a solution. A smart solution. We talk solutions on how do we fix it. With Jim Meggs. And Richard Davies. How do we fix it? Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.